continue our scripture reading through 1 Peter. We'll look at 1 Peter chapter 5. And then we'll consider that as we uh, set our hearts and minds to celebrate communion today. So 1 Peter chapter 5, I think the words will be up there. He says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. I love how in this chapter, Peter refers to Jesus as the chief shepherd. He's actually, at the beginning of this chapter, he's encouraging the pastors, the elders, encouraging them to do their duty, to fulfill their calling, and with the kind of attitude they ought to have, to do it willingly and to give themselves entirely to it, graciously, gently, lovingly. But then he says, you will receive your reward when the chief shepherd appears. And I love that. Jesus is indeed the shepherd of our souls, is he not? Yes, sir. Jesus came and he did what was most needful for us. He saved us. He saved us eternally, for the Bible says that we were all separated from a good and holy God. We were dead in our own trespass and sin, our own rebelliousness and wickedness. But God in love gave His Son, His one and only Son, that even while we were sinners, Christ came and died for us in love. He died upon that cross, rose again from the grave, victorious over sin and death, and we have been promised from the Word of God that if we call upon His name, we should be saved, that we would be born again, life 
eternal life everlasting. And it's not just a, qua- a quantity of life, it's a quality of life. Amen? And Jesus, the great shepherd, has secured that for us. Indeed, he is our good shepherd, our great shepherd. We have all that we need in him. We shall not lack, we shall not want. He cares for us, he provides for us, he leads us in paths of righteousness. Amen? For his name's sake. And so it's good when we come to the table to remember these things afresh. And Jesus said that's why we were to do these things. We're to do it in remembrance of Him. And Paul said that as often as we do it, we are proclaiming the Lord's return until He comes. As I say every time, the Lord was so gracious to give us this, uh, this ordinance that we observe because it is a regular, visible reminder to us of what Christ has accomplished for us. The sacrifice that was made, the price that was paid, and we are to refresh ourselves in the grace of God and the finished work of Jesus over and over and over. So we gather on the Lord's day to sing praise congregationally, to study God's Word together, to take the Lord's Supper in remembrance and honor of Him because He's worthy. He is worthy of celebration. He is worthy of our affection and our gratitude. He is worthy that we remember regularly what He has accomplished for us. How could we ever forget? Why would we ever forget? God help us that we would never forget the price that was paid, the suffering and the agony that our Savior endured in love for us. He'll be glorified into all of eternity as the Lamb who was slain. And we as a people who were bought by that precious blood, that price that was paid. And so we come to the table and we celebrate. We remember afresh what our gracious and precious Savior did for us. He did it willingly. He did it lovingly. He did it for the joy that was set before Him, despising the cross, enduring, despising the shame, you know, and enduring all of that for us. And so here in a moment, we'll, uh, as Pastor Dan plays a song, everybody will come up and grab um, the cup and take it back to your seat, and then we'll partake together And we will celebrate corporately what Christ has done for us as the good shepherd of our souls. Amen? Lord Jesus, we love you. We've gathered here gladly to give you praise. Lord, it's our desire to walk in your marvelous light, to honor you with all of our lives, holding nothing back from you. We recognize that you gave everything that you had to give everything, Lord. You laid down your life. You didn't stop short. Having loved your own who are in the world, you loved them to the very end and beyond. And even now, you continue to love us as you stand at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf as our great and faithful high priest. Thank you, Lord, that you gave your body to be broken, that you gave your blood to be shed for us so that we could be forgiven, cleansed once and for all. There is no need ever for any further sacrifice, for yours was perfectly sufficient once and for all, Lord. We are saved, we are justified, we are sanctified and washed, Lord, white as snow, removing our sins as far as the east is from the west. And We give you much glory and honor today, Lord. Thank you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may partake.
praise God. He's worthy. All right, if you would join me in a word of prayer. Father, we love you. We are delighted to be able to gather around your word. Your word is truth. In it, we have life as uh, we are led to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. You teach us, Lord, how to live. You want what is best for us. Your law is not a burden to us. It is good. Your precepts, your truths are uh, so good for us, Lord. And uh, we desire to learn and to obey because you've said that if we love you, we will keep your commandments. And surely we do, Father. We love you so much. We've gathered here today so that we can learn of you and give you glory and seek to live lives that honor you and bless you and please you. So help us, Father. Help us. Help us by your Holy Spirit to dive the depths of your word, to gain understanding. Help us, Lord, to apply these things to our lives. Help us to glorify you in this very dark world. Help us, Lord, in our battle against sin. And, uh, Lord, we, we worship you. We delight ourselves in you today. And you have said that if we delight ourselves in you, you will give us the desires of our heart. And truly, Lord, you are the desire of our hearts. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. Okay, well, last week, uh, well, technically two weeks ago, we concluded what we call the Upper Room Discourse, chapters 13 through 16. These would be the last few hours, the night before Jesus was to be crucified. He spends it with his disciples there at the Lord's, what we call the Lord's table. That was where it was instituted. That's where Jesus broke bread and ate with his disciples, and this was the Passover meal. It was very significant. And then last week, we looked at chapter 17, which is the Lord's Prayer, or Jesus' high priestly prayer, we call it. And the reason why we call it that, in the last couple of weeks we've been talking about Jesus as our great high priest, is because, well, Jesus is our great high priest. And the significance of that is this, and I, I mentioned this last week, a good way of understanding the function of a priest is kind of putting it beside the function of a prophet. A prophet would hear from God and go to the people and speak forth a message to the people from God. That's what he did. A priest, however, would go to God on behalf of the people because particularly in the Old Testament, as God revealed himself, he was unapproachable. He was a holy God, and he is a holy God, and no one could really stand in his presence and live. And so God set up this whole system, this sacrificial system where the priest would make sacrifice for themselves because they themselves were sinners, and they would make sacrifice for themselves, and then they would make sacrifices on behalf of God's people so that the people could worship God. Now, those sacrifices were not perfect. They, they could only cover over sin, as it were. That's the language that the Bible uses, but it didn't have the ability to wash away sin. And so these priests would have to do this regularly day by day, week by week, year by year, offering sacrifices. That generation of priests would die, and then another generation would come up, and they would do the same thing for every successive generation. Well, Jesus is our great high priest. He stands as one who had to make no sacrifice for himself because he is truly holy, pure, 
righteous in God's sight, sinlessly perfect, and he had the ability to make atonement, to sacrifice on our behalf with a once and for all sacrifice, because it's not the blood of bulls and goats and lambs, it's the blood of the Son of God, the Holy Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and it's a once-for-all deal. It doesn't need to be repeated. But what's even more amazing than that, it was the high priest, our great high priest, who himself made this sacrifice. He gave himself. He sacrificed himself for us. And so truly, Jesus is our great high priest. It is because of him, who he is, what he has accomplished, that we are able to enter into God's presence, not with fear, not with dread, no fear of torment or punishment. We are told to come into God's throne room of grace, to seek grace for help in time of need. And that's the whole significance of that the veil being torn in the temple. When Jesus died on the cross, we're told that the veil to the Holy of Holies was ripped. And that one little room in the center of the temple was a place where only the high priest could go only one day out of the year to offer sacrifice for the sins of the people, the nation of Israel, on the Day of Atonement. And what that huge veil represented was separation, the isolation. We could not enter into God's presence. But because of what Christ accomplished, the veil is torn and the Holy of Holies is opened, and now we are told that we have access. And because we have access, we are told to draw near. Amen? And that's what we celebrate. And so last week, we looked at the, the prayer of our great high priest, the high priestly prayer of Jesus in chapter 17. Today, we're going to look at chapter 18, and we're going to begin to consider the high priest who takes our place the high priest who gives himself for our sins. Amazing. And this will be part one next week. Chapter 19 will be a continuation of that, part two. And so with that, let's go ahead and get into our text today. As we look at this first section of Scriptures 1 through 14, what we're going to notice here is that there are a lot of different players involved, and everyone has an agenda Everybody has an agenda, an expectation for Jesus or something that they plan to impose upon Jesus. But what we're going to find out is Jesus is the one who's actually in control. Who's in control? Jesus is. Everybody's trying to have their way with Him one way or another, but Jesus is in control of all of this. Amen? So let's look at verse 1. It said that when Jesus had spoken these words, that is, after He finished praying... He went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. So, as I mentioned before, back in chapter 14, Jesus said, Arise, let us go from here. We can surmise that chapter 15, they were making their way through the streets of Jerusalem. They've departed from the upper room. Jesus continues teaching them. At some point, he prays this high priestly prayer in the presence of the disciples, and then they arrive at the garden. They arrive at the garden, which is the garden of Gethsemane. And we know that this is where Jesus prays the prayer by Himself, where He says, Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from Me, but not My will, Your will be done. And the Bible says that it was as if He was sweating great drops of blood. 
and he was being crushed, absolutely crushed there in the garden. And, you know, the, just the way it puts it, there was a garden. That's all it says here in the Gospel of John. And I think that it's interesting to me because when God created the world, everything began in the garden. Adam was placed there, Adam and Eve. Adam was given this command not to eat of the fruit in the, of this one tree in the garden, to work and to tend the garden. But what happened? He and Eve, they fell. They rebelled against God's good command. They did their own thing. And then death entered the world. Sin entered the world. The carnage of sin and the curse entered the world. But what happens in this garden? This is the place where really, in so many ways, the victory was won. Jesus was under such intense pain as he was considering the agony that was to soon come. Not only the horrors of the cross, but worse than that, suffering the wrath of Almighty God. And there in the garden, he prayed fervently, intensely, and he handed himself over. He submitted himself over to the Father's will in obedience. So where Adam failed in disobedience, the first Adam, we're told in Romans, the second Adam, 1 Corinthians refers to him as the final Adam, Jesus Christ succeeded. He obeyed. He did the Father's will. Amen? There in the garden. And so, this is all significant to us. It's good to understand the, the terrain where this is taking place, what it would have looked like. And I wanted to show you guys some pictures from different angles, but I wasn't able to find anything that I felt adequately laid the, the you know, set this scene for us. So we're going to watch a little video. It's about five minutes, and uh, it's a little longer than I would like, but it's, uh, it's just a great video. It really describes this, the, the old city high up, down into the Kidron Valley, the Brook Kidron, up into the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, you're going to learn a bit more about olives than I would have liked, but uh, it comes with it. So, you know, just take that for what it's worth. But there's significance even in that. So we're going to take a few minutes and watch this video, and I trust that we will all be, uh, be blessed as we kind of gain some insight into what this would have looked like in many ways. So let's roll the video. I'm overlooking the Kidron Valley, located on the eastern edge of Jerusalem's old city, with the Temple Mount up there and the Mount of Olives over there. Let's go take a closer look. The Kidron Valley itself has been the site of many important events in biblical history. In the Old Testament, King David crossed the Kidron Valley to escape his wicked son, Absalom. The Mount of Olives is a small mountain on the east side of the Kidron Valley outside the old city walls of Jerusalem. It is named for the many ancient olive groves that once covered the valley and still grow in some areas around here. Today, an entire part of the Mount of Olives looks dusty gray because that area is covered by thousands of tombs and graves. On the lower north side of the Mount of Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane. In the New Testament, Jesus traveled from Jerusalem to Bethany through the Kidron Valley to visit Lazarus and raise him from the dead. He also rode the foal of a donkey up the Kidron Valley from the Mount of Olives through the Golden Gate, which you can see behind me during his triumphal entry. 
A few days later, after the Last Supper with his disciples in Jerusalem, Jesus left the city, crossed back over the Kidron Valley, and came over here to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. It was here that Jesus was arrested the night of his betrayal by Judas. As I walk through Gethsemane today, Gethsemane, a word which means olive press in Hebrew, it's remarkable to see these ancient olive trees. Some say that this entire portion of the olive grove dates back to the time of Christ. But look at those gnarly tree trunks. Others say it's unlikely and that all the trees of the Mount of Olives would have been destroyed with the rest of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Olive trees get large, gnarled, and twisted as they age, and many in the Garden of Gethsemane certainly fit that description. Though rare, olive trees older than 2,000 and perhaps even as old as 3,000 years have been documented in the Mediterranean and Middle East regions. The Garden of Gethsemane, located here at the foot of the Mount of Olives, is now protected by the walled grounds of the Church of All Nations, also known as the Church of the Agony. It's a peaceful garden among a grove of ancient olive trees looking back at the eastern wall of Jerusalem's old city. It's thought that this is the location that Jesus prayed the night of his arrest and betrayal. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there to pray. Matthew 26, 36. According to the account that we have in Luke, Christ experienced extreme distress and despair here at Gethsemane. The events of his torture and crucifixion would soon unfold, and the wrath of God the Father would soon be poured out on Christ on the cross for the sins of the world. His sorrow was so great that Scripture tells us that his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And he even asked his father that if there was any other way to let this cup pass from him. For millions of Christians around the world, Christ's acceptance of his father's plan of salvation here at Gethsemane is the most moving display of sacrificial love in human history. Jesus was betrayed by Judas and arrested here in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was here that Peter tried to defend Jesus with a sword by cutting off the ear of an arresting servant of the high priest. Jesus said, no more of this. He then touched his ear and it was healed. As recorded in Luke 22:52, Jesus then said this to the chief priests, temple guard, and elders who had come for him. Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour, when darkness reigns. Then Jesus was seized and taken to Caiaphas, the high priest, at the place where the scribes and elders had assembled. Okay. Hope that, guys, that was a little bit of a blessing, kind of intriguing to you. A little longer than I would have liked, but hey, I thought that was pretty cool. So with that, now it's so it was so cool to see that because I got to walk all through that area last uh, November and December, and so I kind of wanted you guys to see what I saw. 
and that was pretty cool. So, all right. So here we are back in our text. They're at the garden. Jesus has prayed that prayer. Um, and look with me at verse 2. It says, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So one thing that is interesting to me here is that Judas knew full well where they would be. And Jesus knew that Judas knew that. So this was all part of Jesus' plan. Jesus could have very easily gone somewhere else, right? He could have gone somewhere where Judas wouldn't have had any idea. So all this had been worked out. Judas went and betrayed Jesus to the religious leaders for 30 pieces of silver. He went away to get them and bring them back and to betray Christ to them with a kiss. And he knew exactly where to go because Jesus often met there, and no doubt Jesus obviously knew what was coming. And so the stage was set. There they were in the garden, and it had to have been really an ominous sight to see from that vantage point. You can just see that whole group of guards and people coming out of the city gate with torches and lanterns and making their way down this hill, this procession down the hill and up. Um, we believe it was a, a, a cohort of Roman soldiers. That means it would have been about 600 soldiers. And so you just imagine a crowd like that with the temple priest, those uh, Jewish men who were selected to guard the temple were also in the midst with the religious leaders and Judas at the front of the line. And here they come, making their way down this hill and then back up into the garden where Jesus and his disciples would be waiting for this to take place. So verse 4, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them, and when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, this is amazing to me. As the crowd makes its way to the, the garden, Jesus, it says, knowing all that would happen to him, he knew all that was coming, he went to them and said, whom do you seek? Now, that is, Jesus, his face was set, as the Bible says. He was determined. Nothing was going to sway him from doing the Father's will and dying for the bride. Now, if this were me in the garden, and I saw them coming, and I knew all that was going to happen, my response probably would have been like, oh, well, I'm actually Larry Christ. I'm the lesser-known brother of Jesus. Not really sure where he is, but I can let him know that y'all are looking for him. <laughs> Not so. Jesus goes right into it, and he says, I am he. I am the one. I am Jesus of Nazareth. Now, this is... Again, here, what Jesus is essentially saying here, I haven't looked this up for myself, but what I have, uh, what I have been told is that the he is not actually there in the Greek construction, so Jesus says, I am, and we, ego, I, me, and we know what that is. That's a reference back to 
the burning bush when Moses said to the voice coming out of the bush, which was the Lord, who do I say sent me? He said, I am. Tell them I am has sent you. And when Jesus says this, what happens? Everybody falls over. You almost miss it. It seems so subtle. When he said this, they drew back and fell to the ground. 600 plus people, Roman soldiers, fully armed. And why are there so many? Because they were afraid that Jesus was going to lead a revolt. That was something that did happen frequently. People tried to overthrow the Roman occupation. Most of you know at this point in time, Rome had conquered so much of the known world, and they would allow different places to continue to govern and to have their own religion and rules and laws set in place, but Rome was ultimately the power, and everybody had to pay taxes to Rome, and Rome had to do everything they could to keep uprisings at bay. And the Jews, particularly the zealots up in the northern part of Israel, Galilee, were known for trying to rise up and overthrow. And so they saw Jesus as a potential ringleader of this group that might try to rise up and fight against Rome. And so they come out here with all of these guards to apprehend Jesus. But what happens? Jesus says, I am, and they all fall to the ground. And so it's as if Jesus is saying, look, I'm here. I'm going to do the Father's will. I will go with you. But just know, just know who I am and what I could do to you. It's almost like he's bowing up for just a second. Who's really in control here? I am. But in obedience to the Father's will and for the love of those that I would give my lives for, I go. That's really put on display for us here. But I think it's also for another reason, and I think we see this in verse 7 and 7 through 9, so let's look at that together. So he asked them again. So they fell over, got back up. Judas fell over too. You have to wonder what was going through his mind at this point. Jesus asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And this was to fulfill the word that, had, that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. And so when did he speak this? He says this is to fulfill the word that he spoke. Just in the last chapter, when the great high priest Jesus was praying for us, he said, Father, I've not lost one except the son of destruction, Judas, as the Scriptures have foretold, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Jesus wasn't going to lose any of his disciples and so even here, Jesus is interceding on behalf of the eleven, and He shows a, just a little hint of His power as He says His name, and they fall to the ground, and He says, okay, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, let these other go. And they're, at this point, they're probably like, okay, that's fine, they can go, but please come with us. And Jesus does, and, and Jesus goes. And again, we talked about this last week, I, I just love this reality, it reigns true. Jesus will keep his own and he will not lose one. He will not lose one. Who's in control? Jesus is in control. Jesus is in control. And we need to remember that in our own lives. Jesus is in control. We see here you've got the Romans who want to take Jesus out because he might be a threat. You have the Jews 
the religious leaders who are jealous of Jesus, we're told, and they want to take Jesus out. You got Peter, who we're going to look at in a morning, in a moment. He doesn't have any clue what's going on, and he tries to swoop in and, and do his thing. And so you have all these different angles, different agendas happening all at once, but there's one agenda that will be upheld. There's one agenda that will be accomplished. It's God the Father's through Jesus Christ. Amen. And so, verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And so here, you hear all kinds of, this is sloppy, Peter's a fisherman, he's not a swordsman, obviously. He goes after this guy and chops him in his, we're told, right ear, which is interesting because if Peter was right-handed, and we don't know that for sure, but if he was, it's safe to say he very likely was, then in order for him to chop the guy's right ear, he would have had to come from behind, right? And so it could be that Peter's like, well, this guy's not a soldier. You know, he's a, he's a servant to the high priest, I'm just going to go in on this guy and just hack on him or something. I mean, who knows what, what Peter's thinking, if he's thinking anything at all, but he, he just goes for it. He leaps in, and he's going to save the day. There's over 600 people here with clubs and swords, and you got Peter here who's going to come in and save Jesus. And so as I say, you see now Peter, remember he said, everyone else will forsake you. I won't. In fact, I will die for you. So this is his moment to shine. This is his moment to show Jesus that he really meant what he said, and he was going to follow through, and he was going to make good on it. So here it is. It's go time for Peter. And at best, he chops off this guy's ear, and uh, Jesus stops him, and he says, put your sword up. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus was going to do the Father's will here. He was not going to fight against it. He could have. He could have called down legions of angels from heaven to take these guys out. He didn't do it. He went peacefully. He went as a sheep led to the slaughter. As a sheep is silent before its shearers, just as Isaiah 53 said. So, verse 12, it says, The band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus, bound him, and first they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. And it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. And so now Jesus has been apprehended, he's taken, and we're told he's taken to Annas. Now there was a rotation that would happen. There would be someone who would serve as the high priest. It was a very special honor. And they would serve for a period of time. And at this point, we're dealing with this guy, Annas. Now, he was the father-in-law of the current sitting high priest. But what this lets us know is that he's still kind of the power behind the throne, if you will. Caiaphas is in power, so to speak, but Annas is still kind of the top dog here. And so he's going to have first go with Jesus. They're going to come to Annas first. Now, this is a totally fraudulent trial that is happening here. The law is being broken 
in so many ways this evening as they apprehend Jesus and put Him on trial and falsely accuse Him. None of this is happening the way it was supposed to happen within the law of Moses. Such we see the hypocrisy of what is going on here. These religious leaders don't care. They just have an agenda. They're trying to get rid of Jesus. So these guilty hypocrites are doing everything that they can to take out the truly innocent and holy Lamb, the Son of God. But who's in control? Jesus is in control. Jesus is in control. And let that be a lesson to us. You know what? We, we are not in control. We really try to be in control. We really think many times that we are in control. And we strive and we fight and we strain and we agonize over what we think is the best plan for our lives and how that should go and what we can do to get ourselves there. And we chase and we chase and we chase the wind and we may not even necessarily get those things. And then we realize we have wished our life away. We've spent so much time agonizing over things that are outside of our control and we fail to enjoy Christ and honor Him in the moment, and to be grateful for the things that we do have. And I would submit to you that so often we have what we really, what's most important in life. God, God gives us what He wants us to have, and we are all blessed with where we are right now in life, but it's never enough. And you know what? It never will be if we continue to chase after the things that we don't have. And we all have plans and the way we want things to go, but who's in control? Jesus is in control if you belong to Him. I hope that Jesus is your Savior and your Lord and your Master and that He is ultimately in control of your life because His plans are the best plans. His ways are the best ways. They are what truly make for the most meaningful existence down here and eternal reward in the thereafter. And so Jesus is in control. Praise God. We have our agendas. We have our agendas. There are things that we desperately desire. I'm sure all of us in here right now that we want deeply, but Jesus is in control. Jesus has the best agenda. So we got to trust Him. We have to wait on Him. And I'm preaching to myself just as much as anybody in here. I have to tell myself this regularly because it is so hard. It is so hard. Our hearts always long for more. They always long for what we don't have. And as I've said before, I think that is just part of living in this world because we'll never be truly full until we stand with Him in glory. And I think in part God would have it this way so that we would always remember this world is not our home. This world was never meant to fully satisfy us. Our satisfaction can only be being in the presence of God, seeing Him as, as He is being who He intended us to be, walking with Him in perfect fellowship in the absence of sin and sickness and death. Amen? So Jesus is in control. Remember that. And that is great news. And we need to let Him. We need to stop fighting. We need to start trusting. Stop fighting. Start trusting. Amen? Stop fighting. Start trusting. His ways are the best ways. And all we have to do is wait. And that is so hard. I say that's all we have to do. That is agonizing. You know, I always talk about God has two speeds, slowly and suddenly. I love suddenly. I hate slowly. And so much of it is slowly, just waiting, waiting, waiting. 
All right, this brings us to the kind of the next portion of the chapter. Now we're going to see Peter in action. We're going to see him fail spectacularly. G, uh, Peter fails spectacularly, but Jesus succeeds faithfully and gloriously. Amen? And so let's look at verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door, outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. So this other disciple, we can be almost entirely sure this is the Apostle John writing. And he's referring to himself as that disciple. John never names himself, but he will at times refer to himself as the one whom Jesus loved or the other disciple, this unnamed disciple. So John is speaking of himself here. And we're told that John knew the high priest, and the high priest knew John. So John seemingly didn't really have any threat on his life here. He was able to go in and out of the high priest's court, which is very interesting to me. And I've, I've just heard speculation that John's dad, Zebedee, had just this booming fishing business, and it's altogether likely that they were well known to the priestly family and to the religious leaders there um, because of that reason. So there was a familiarity there, and so in some sense, John seemed to have this ability to come and go with no real fear, but not so with Peter. But John goes in and talks to the servant girl at the door, and Peter comes in because John seems to have some clout here. And so we look at verse 17. Well, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And what did Peter do? What did he say? He said, I am not. And it didn't take much, did it? I'm not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. And Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Now, I've heard many sermons preached on Peter being where Peter should not have been, warming himself at the enemy's fire. You hear that kind of stuff, man, it'll preach. It sounds good and it makes sense. Peter was at a distance. You know, he was following Jesus from a distance, and we can't do that. If we follow Jesus at a distance, if we cozy up with the enemy and warm ourselves by the enemy's fire, we're going to end up like Peter. That all sounds great. Like I said, it, it makes sense. And we could be really hard on Peter for what happens, what he's doing, and what's about to happen to him. But as I thought through this, what should Peter have done really? I don't feel like he really had a good option here. One, he could have just taken off with the rest of the disciples. We only really read that John and Peter followed along, and the other disciples totally abandoned Jesus. But should he have really gone to the end and died with Jesus? No, because that wasn't God's plan for Peter, obviously. Jesus had already told Peter that Satan wanted to sift him like wheat. He said, but I prayed for you that your faith wouldn't fail and that when you returned, you would strengthen your brothers. And so Jesus knew what was about to happen to Peter. It was part of God's plan. 
and Peter was going to fail spectacularly. Satan was going to sift him like wheat, and he was going to get humbled, and that was the medicine that he needed. He needed to be humbled and to really develop a, a healthy sense of distrust for himself. We all need that. And so I would submit to you what happened to Peter is exactly what was supposed to happen and what needed to happen to Peter. And so was it really a failure? Did Peter really fail? I say that Peter fails spectacularly because that's the way it's always presented. But I want to give him some grace here. God knows what he's doing, and Peter is his servant, and Peter got exactly what he needed. And so I, let me turn that around on us. There are so many things that God has done in my life and, and through me and to me through my own spectacular failures. Now, if I could have written the story, it wouldn't have gone down that way. I wish that I could have just got zapped with some sanctification and grown, you know, and when we are failing, of course, we feel the weight of that because we don't want to dishonor God. We, want, we don't want to bring reproach on Christ. We don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. And it, it's a horrible thing, but it's, it's not a failure. God is using it all. God does the most extreme and radical work in our lives through the hardships, the sufferings, the failures, and even our sin. So what I'm not saying is if you really want to grow, then go out there and just sin with all your might. You know, you'll just be sanctified. No, that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is if you are really struggling, that might be just where God would have you. I think about Peter walking on the waves. Was that really a failure that Peter went under? You know, I think that God sometimes would rather have us humble under the crashing waves than with great arrogance walking on the water. Look at me walking on the water. Were you walking on the water? I didn't see anybody else get out of the boat. No? God doesn't want that, and we don't need that either. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Peter got humbled, and that was just what he needed. And Peter gets humbled here, and that is just what he needed. So praise God that even though we fail spectacularly, it's not a waste. It's not even really a failure. And God's grand plan and scheme, God uses it all to make us into the men and women of God He intended us to be, because God has a plan for us. And oftentimes, this Jesus, Peter's plan was something altogether different. He had his plan for his life. He had his agenda. He knew how this thing was going to go, and it didn't go that way, did it? But we look at what God ended up doing with Peter and how God used Peter. Amazing, amazing. So praise God that we have that same hope. Look at verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me, uh, have heard, uh, ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. So the I think kind of what Jesus is really getting at here is that this is some shady stuff. Jesus knows it. Everybody knows it. This isn't the way that this was supposed to go down if they really had 
just accusations against Jesus and could really haul him into the court of law. And he says, why are you doing this shady secret thing? Have I all, haven't I always been in the open about everything I've said and done? Haven't there been so many witnesses who can testify? Where are your witnesses? Ask them. You remember they had, to, they had to get false witnesses because there were no witnesses that could actually bring a charge against Jesus. And their false witnesses were so scattered and, and all over the place, it was obvious to everyone that their witnesses were false and that their testimony wasn't true. And so Jesus seems to be pointing to that. So what happens, verse 22, when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by, officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? The King James Version says, why smitest thou me? Then, verse 24, Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So, this first little trial happened at Annas' place, and it didn't go well. Jesus more or less exposes the reality that this is some shady thing going on here. And what is their response to that? The, high, the soldier smacks Jesus and says, you don't talk to the high priest like that. It's amazing to me, the hypocrisy here, the corruption here. And Jesus, the only truly innocent one in the room. Think about that. Jesus is the only truly innocent one in the room at that point. And yet, he gets struck like that. Amazing. Well, verse uh, 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter denied it again, and at once a rooster crowed. Now, that had to be awkward. Hey, I know you just cut my cousin's ear off. All right, come on, tell the truth. We know who you are. And we're told in Matthew that Peter invoked a curse upon himself. He basically swore to God that God would curse him if he was not telling the truth. And then what happens? A rooster crows. And that's significant because Jesus had told Peter back in John 13, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. And that is to say before the morning comes. It's in the evening right now. Before the, the morning comes, you will deny me three times. You're not going to die with me. You're not going to follow me all the way to the end. And this happens. And we're told in one of the other Gospels that Jesus and Peter were in somewhat close proximity to each other, and then Peter looked and saw Jesus, and Jesus looked at Peter, and then Peter remembered what Jesus told him, and then Peter ran out weeping bitterly. Man, that's tragic. Tragic. God uses that kind of tragedy to break us, doesn't He? All right, well, this brings us to the third part of our story third part of our chapter, and uh, this would be really the guilty putting the innocent on trial. The guilty putting the innocent on trial. And you know what? So do we. So do we. So often we stand in accusation of God and His goodness and His plan, His work, His timing. Verse 28, 
Then they led uh, Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning, and they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. All right, so now they're going to the governor, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and they are seeking for him to give Jesus the death penalty. Now, we're given another hint here to the hypocrisy because as best we can tell, there is no restriction on somebody entering into a Gentile's uh, government official building and being defiled so as to not be able to partake of the Passover. So this is some external religious stipulation they added to the law. We see to what extents they're willing to go to be pure religiously, ceremonially, But what are they actually doing? They are seeking to condemn a just and righteous man to death because of their own jealousy, greed, and hypocrisy. Is that crazy? Is that mind-boggling? Well, verse 29, So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. What kind of answer is that? Look, you don't need to worry about that. We wouldn't have brought him here if there wasn't just reason, okay? So just do this for us, please. Amazing. And um, what's going on here is that, as I said, when Rome would come in and take over a place, they were allowed to keep their own laws and customs and religious practices and all of that intact. But one thing they were not allowed to do was exercise capital punishment. Now, that was something the Jews always had the right to do. And they would do that by stoning an individual according to the law, but they weren't allowed to do that anymore. They had to get the go-ahead from Rome. And so they come to Pontius Pilate, and they ask him to grant them this right. Verse 31, Pilate said to them, "'Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law.' The Jews said to him, "'It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death.' This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So this is really interesting. Jesus had to die by crucifixion. The Old Testament prophecies were that explicit. Psalm 22 talks about his hands and his feet being pierced. Uh, Zechariah says they'll look upon him whom they pierce and they will mourn. Uh, really, the, the description of the cross is so, so explicit in Psalm 22. Isaiah 53, on and on it goes. The Savior had to be crucified. He could not be stoned, and that's what would have happened to him if he was condemned under Jewish law and executed. This had to happen through Roman crucifixion. Jesus had said it was going to go down this way, and this is why ultimately they would have to do it. Now, the Jews are just saying, we're not allowed to put him to death according to Roman law, so you have to do it. But this was actually to fulfill God's word about His Son. So who's in control? Jesus is in control. God's in control. Verse 33, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus, excuse me. So, it seems like there's this interesting thing happening with Pilate right now. 
And it's almost as if Jesus is trying to dig in a little bit and trying to appeal to Pilate, and, and Pilate just isn't having any of it. But it's, it's cool to see how it's almost as if Jesus is trying to get Pilate to consider and think through who he actually is. And we know that Pilate's wife had a dream, we're told in Matthew, and she told Pilate, leave this guy alone. I had a dream and I suffered much because of this dream. Leave this righteous man alone. So Pilate is definitely, I think, he's struggling with all of this right now. He's in a bad situation and he really doesn't want to hand Jesus over. So verse 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Jesus said, look, if my goal was to take over down here right now, then my people would fight. They would deliver me from you and from your hands. Jesus is about a whole other kingdom. We need to remember this. We get very, very distracted with this earthly kingdom, political stuff. And yeah, well, there's a place for us to be involved, to vote, to be a righteous voice in this generation. We should do that. But folks, we are really living for another kingdom. And that kingdom is about something so much bigger than this, what's going on right now. And so Jesus said, that's not what I'm here for. I'm here for something else. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, to secure salvation for, for the lost, and he's about saving souls. Now, he will come back at his appointed time, set up his kingdom on earth, and he will handle business. But we as his followers, as his loyal subjects, as his soldiers, we are about something altogether different, something higher, something greater. We are to be used by our king in gospel work, amen, and soul care to help be used to seek and to save the lost as our Savior came to do. Well, verse 37, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. So Pilate says, what is truth? I love that. Sounds a lot like our, the day and age in which we live, doesn't it? What is truth? There is no truth. Your truth is okay for you, but my truth is okay for me and we're all right, and so just leave me alone and let me have my truth. Nope. The truth was sitting right in front of him. The truth was sitting right in his very presence. Jesus is the truth. Amen? The way, the truth, and the life. And Pontius Pilate knew this. He knew something was very, very significant about this man in front of him. And what did he say? I find no guilt in him. Verses 39 through 40. Speaking to the, to the crowd now, Pontius says, But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Just this one little verse in here about this guy Barabbas. So there was this 
tradition at this time of the year, we're told the, the governor would do this. This was a time of the year where they were particularly concerned about an uprising in Jerusalem. And so they would have this concession. They would give over a, a prisoner to the people to kind of appease the people and keep tension low. And I think Pilate was hoping he could give Jesus over to them. And so he picks this guy, Barabbas, who was, a, we're told he was a robber, an insurrectionist, so he was a zealot, and he was a murderer. And Pilate puts him up beside Jesus and says, would you like Jesus or Barabbas? And what do they say? Give us the murderer. Give us the insurrectionist. Give us the robber. Crucify Jesus. So what's, what's happening here? Well, I'll tell you what's happening here. The innocent is taking the place of the guilty. The innocent is taking the place of the guilty. Barabbas is truly guilty, and he is truly deserving of condemnation and punishment. And Pontius says here, choose one, and they choose the guilty. They choose the murderer. And Jesus, because Jesus takes Barabbas' place. Have you ever thought about that? Barabbas goes free because Jesus is condemned in his place. That is amazing. But you know what? We are Barabbas. I'm Barabbas, and so are you. We are murderers. We are idolaters. We are, we are covetous. We are adulterers. We are all of that. We are all of that in our hearts and worse. But Christ died in our place. The innocent took the place of the guilty. He who knew no sin became sin so that we would receive the righteousness of Christ and live and have Christ's righteousness and stand in God's presence as those who have been washed and cleansed and set free and adopted into God's family to enjoy eternal bliss and glory with our loving Heavenly Father and Creator. Amen? We were Barabbas. And the innocent died for the guilty. We were guilty. We're still guilty. We still sin. We still fall short in our weakness. But even that has been paid for. If you are in Christ today, if you have trusted Christ for salvation, every sin that you have ever committed or will ever commit has been washed away. It has been placed on the innocent one there on the cross. And He suffered the condemnation and wrath that we justly deserved. Such is the goodness of our Father. Such is the goodness of our Savior. Such is the power of the cross. Amen? Amen and amen. He did that for us. He was our substitute. He died in our stead. He rose, and in Him we too have risen to the newness of life. Everything that He has accomplished has been given to us. It is ours because we are in Christ and Christ is in us. If you have come in here today and you don't know Jesus personally, if you don't know Him as your Lord, if you don't know Him as your Savior, if you do not know God as your Father, I am pleading with you. I implore you. I urge you to trust Christ. Call upon His name. Ask God to forgive you. Tell the, tell the Father that you need His gift and that you want Jesus and that you want to live for Jesus and that you want to turn from your sin and experience God's goodness and God's love 
in your life and God's provision and God's direction. You want to be set free from the condemnation of hell and judgment, and you want to be brought into the freedom and the glory of being a child of God. I know you want that. You're here. God has drawn you to this place. It is no coincidence, no coincidence. It is God's goodness that you are here today hearing this message. Trust Christ. Repent. Believe on the name of Jesus and be saved. Amen? Believe on the name of Jesus and be healed, be forgiven, be restored, because truly He has come to take our place, and so He has, and such is the love of God. And what an amazing high priest, what an amazing high priest who would pay such a price for us that He would give His life. Let's give Him praise. Amen.